Hi, I'm David Sharp, your host, and welcome to Painopolis, a new podcast for people with chronic pain. Today, we meet a chronic pain patient who gets his medical marijuana straight from Uncle Sam. You've probably heard about our guest today, maybe not by name, but certainly by way of urban legend. The story goes like this. In Mississippi, the U.S. government has been growing marijuana for decades and giving the crop for free to a small, select group of Americans suffering from chronic pain and other serious medical conditions. And it's all perfectly legal. According to this urban legend, these recipients could walk up to the door of the nearest DEA office, light up a joint made from government-provided marijuana, and not get arrested. What's more, anywhere in the U.S. that it's legal to smoke a cigarette, it's legal for these people to smoke marijuana. Well, the story's not just a legend, and today we talk to one of those recipients, Irvin Rosenfeld. He's a 63-year-old Florida stockbroker who's received free U.S. government-approved marijuana for more than 30 years. He uses it to treat chronic pain caused by congenital bone tumors that conventional drugs failed to alleviate. That's right, the same federal government that locks up thousands of people for using marijuana has also been doling out marijuana to Rosenfeld and others. He recounts his story in his riveting autobiography, My Medicine, how I convinced the U.S. government to provide my marijuana and help launch a national movement. We chat with Rosenfeld about how he persuaded the feds to stop bogarting the pot what the rest of us with chronic pain can learn from his decades-long reliance on medical marijuana, and what happened the day he lit up one of his legal joints at Disney World. But first, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It's not to be used as a substitute for qualified medical advice. Go to painobelis.com to read our disclaimer in its entirety, along with our terms of use and other important information. Now, let's dive into today's show. Take me back to that day when you were 10 years old. You were playing baseball. Then out of nowhere, you got struck for the first time in your life with a bizarre symptom. Tell me what happened that day. What happened is this was Little League, and this was the last game of the season. And I had hit in two runs the inning before to put us up by one. And I'm playing shortstop. Okay. The first two batters struck out. This was at the bottom of the six, which was their last at bat. The next kid hit a triple which would have been the tying run. The next ball was hit to me at shortstop. I fielded the ball, and when you're 10 years old, A, you never know if you're going to catch the ball. B, if you catch it, if you throw it, and see if it's going to be caught you know, by the first baseman. So I threw the ball, waited for it to go to the first baseman. The first baseman caught the ball, and he was out, and so we won the game. So when you're 10 years old and you win, you're very happy, and you want to throw your glove up in the air. Sure. So the arm that I used to throw the ball to first base, I went to pick up my glove and throw it up, and I could not move my arm. It's totally paralyzed. Just completely motionless? Completely. I couldn't. I looked at it, and I'm saying move, and it wouldn't move. And it didn't hurt. There was no pain. Bizarre. It was totally paralyzed. I mean, what did you think had happened? Oh, I had no idea. I mean, you're 10 years old. You don't have any idea at that point. And so I assume your parents freaked out and took you to a doctor? Oh, yeah. My parents and the coach came running out and said, what's wrong? I said I couldn't move my arm, and they just seen me throw the ball to first base, you know? And so the hospital was across the street from the Little Lake Field. So how long did it take them to get me in a car and get me over to the emergency room? Three minutes, maybe? Mm-hmm. 
I get out of the car and my arm is fine. Wow. No problems. And so my mother, who worked for my great uncle, who was one of the heads of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins in the summertime, she worked for him. She knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so we went in and had an x-ray. And the radiologist came back and says, oh, I know what's wrong with you. You broke your wrist when you were a baby, and you have a jagged bone sticking out of your wrist. The nerve got twisted around the jagged bone, and you went paralyzed. And then it eased up, and you were fine. Don't worry about it. Go home. We went home, and that night my mother said it just wouldn't make sense. We would have known if he broke his wrist. Well, sure, definitely. And so she said, I'm taking you to an orthopedic surgeon tomorrow, who she knew. So I went to this orthopedic surgeon. He felt the knot. And then he started feeling all over the place. He says, Thelma, my mother's name was Thelma. I'm feeling these knots all over the place. That had to have been frightening. Especially to my mother and to me. I mean, it was. I still didn't. But again, there was no pain. So as a 10-year-old, you really aren't too concerned about it, really. And so they did x-rays of the rest of the body. And sure enough, there were these tumors, which they showed me. These nodules were sticking out. And the doctor immediately knew the disorder, what it was. He gave you the accurate diagnosis right then. Yes. He said, I know what this is. We studied it in medical school, and I've seen one or two patients with it, but not to this extent. You know, they have a few tumors, and you seem to have tumors everywhere. It's called multiple congenital cartilaginous exostosis, which was the medical name back in 1963. It has since changed to multiple hereditary exostosis. That's the modern name. But back then, that was the name. And he said, I have no idea what to do for this because I don't know much about it. He said, go home, contact your great uncle from Johns Hopkins and your regular uncle from Yale. You had two uncles who were physicians. Right. I had a great uncle who at one point was head of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. And then my regular uncle taught pediatrics at Yale, plus had private practice. Wow. And so we called the two of them and told them the disease. And of course, they had heard of it, but they hadn't seen much of it. They go, let's let us check and we'll get back to you. So about an hour later, my uncle calls back and says to my mother, his sister, that the center for this disease is Boston Children's Hospital. And I've already reached out to the top doctor there, and you've got an appointment in three days. So you've got to come to Boston. And I lived in Southern Virginia. So to me, it was a vacation. Never been on a boat before. And they had a ferry going from Virginia to Maryland. And then you drove the rest of the way to Connecticut. And it's just like seeing my family, seeing my uncle and my aunt and my first cousin. Because, again, I wasn't, you know, all that concerned until they took me to the hospital. And here was this whole hospital for just children, which I thought was amazing. And when I walked in and uh, waited, and, of course, my name was called, and my father and my mother were with me. And so we went in, and there were all these interns and residents. I mean, there must have been 20 doctors in the room, big room. And then here comes Dr. Green, the main guy. And comes over, introduces himself. He says, we want to get a full set of x-rays. And I knew x-rays didn't hurt because I'd had them in Portsmouth three days prior. He said, and then we'll talk. So I had complete body films. In fact, one film was the size of my body. I'd never seen an x-ray that big. And so he came back with all the residents and all the interns and said, okay, this is what you have. And he named the disease again. He said, I've been doing this for many decades, and this is probably one of the worst cases I've ever seen. He said, you have hundreds of these tumors. Hundreds? He said, I had about 200 tumors in my body. And they were located on your bones? Most long bones of the body, like on my fingers, on my wrist, on my elbows, and my arms, my shoulders, my leg, my ankles, so just my pelvic. And I had certain deformities, too, that they pointed out, meaning I didn't have an ulnar bone. Little things like that, curvature of the arms. And he said that these tumors were going to grow as high grow. 
that's when I really started getting worried. That's when I really started getting upset, you know, about what's really going to happen. And he didn't pull any punches. He said, I'll tell you right now, that is one of the worst cases I've ever seen, but with my help, and something I'm going to tell you about later, this disease, you've got so many bone tumors that we could be operating on you once a week for the next 10 years, and we can't do that. We're going to teach you what to do because you've got to make the decision yourself. Turned to my parents and said that I am the only one that can make decisions, not y'all, not the doctor, because only he knows how these tumors feel. So the rest of the day, I mean, the rest of that morning, the residencies and the doctors uh, and, and, and the uh, interns took me under their wing like I was their little brother. And they started teaching me everything they knew about this disease. As they said, they want me to know as much as any doctor in the country knows about this disease when I leave there that afternoon. So they were showing me pictures of surgeries, you know, people cut up and things like that, and what the tumors look like, and how they operate and cut them out, basically a buzzsaw or a chisel and hammer almost. And this was not very nice as a 10-year-old to see this. It's got to be surreal. It was, but yet, you know, I had no pain, never had any pain. And so here they're telling me all this, and then when the doctor came back in, he said, you know, how's my student doing? They said that I was a quick learner, and I was learning very well, and that they were teaching me. And he turned to me and said, Irvin, i got to tell you now, and of course my parents were there, he said, there's a chance you're not going to outlive your teenage years. There's a damn good chance you're not going to do it, because what's going to happen is one of these tumors is going to get away from us and possibly go malignant. But really what I'm worried about isn't so much malignancy, it's hemorrhaging. These tumors will grow into the veins and into your muscles, but the veins will tear. And if you tear veins, you can hemorrhage, and a clock can break off and go to your heart, you bring your lungs, and you're dead. He said, that's the real scary part of this. But for a kid as bad off as you are, I'm the best doctor in the world when it comes to this disease. He said, my second best doctor was a student of mine who was in the Navy, and he was in the Navy in your hometown of Portsmouth, Virginia. That's where we have the big naval hospital. And he said, and he just got out of the Navy. And where is he settling? In your hometown of Portsmouth, Virginia, because he loved it there so much when he was in the Navy. One of the leading experts is in your hometown. He hadn't even started practicing yet. That's why he said, for kids dead off as you are, you're very lucky, because you can't have me for a doctor because I'm in Boston. He said, but the second best doctor in the country, as far as I'm concerned, the world, is me right in your hometown. Amazing. So here's his name, and here's his phone number, and when you go back to Portsmouth, you give him a call. And so they continued teaching me the rest of the day. And I realized what I was facing, although I still didn't want to believe it. And my parents, my parents were always there for me. I mean, they were upset over the situation, but they understood too, especially being my mother worked with my great uncle at Johns Hopkins, that there are a lot of disorders that only the patient knows what's going on. And so they were okay with me making the decision as a 10-year-old or 11 or whatever age. So that's what we did. And that afternoon when we left, Dr. Green said to me, you do realize that you're one of my students, and I expect you to do well, and if you have any questions, call me, but you got Dr. Wave right there, and, and he's great, and so you've got the best chance to make it with him, and so best of luck, and I hope we'll help you, and I thanked him, and then we left and drove back, and so that was my indoctrination to this bone disease. Truly horrifying a truly horrifying experience for a young kid to go through. But at this point, you weren't experiencing any pain. None whatsoever. And the tumors that are growing in your body, as I understand it, they start off benign, but then, as you just mentioned, they could potentially turn malignant. Is that how it works? Right. What happens is, and what they taught me was, that if a tumor starts growing very quickly, there's a good chance it's going to go malignant. And so, therefore, you've got to take it out. Then they also taught me that there are two types of tumors. 
there's an osteochondroma which grows outwardly. The chance of that malignancy is about 9% unless it grows very quickly. So there's not a real large chance of it going malignant. But then there's enchondromas which grow inwardly, and they have up to a 20% chance of malignancy. He said, they're the ones we're worried about because you don't see those. You don't feel those until something bad happens. And that's why I was having films every three months from that moment on. As my growing years, every three months I was having complete body films. So if we would have noticed an enchondroma growing, then most likely instead of body films every three months, I would have that area x-rayed probably every 30 days. And there was really only one tumor that grew very quickly that was an osteochondroma that had to come out. I only ever had one. The rest were because they were in bad areas. If they were towards a growth center, they had to come out. Or if they were in an area that caused a lot of pain, they had to come out. And speaking of pain, you weren't experiencing pain at this time, but when did the pain start and how bad did it get? It started at age 11. And it started with that original tumor on my right wrist. I started having trouble. This was probably in November, December. And I started having trouble writing in school because I'm right-handed. And so eh, that kind of bothered me a little bit. But then it dawned on me that, hey, wait a minute. Is this going to interfere with me playing Little League? Of course. I mean, you had your priorities in order, Little League and then health, yes. You know, and so when I went to the doctor when this was bothering me, I said, Dr. Wade, this wrist is bothering me. He said, in what way? I told him in writing and doing things with my wrist. And I said, what I'm worried about is I'm going to be able to play baseball. And he kind of snickered. And he said, well, Irvin, let's put it this way. He said, it's bothering you. It's actually an easy tumor to take out. He said, so if you want us to operate, I'll do it. So I went in and had surgery. And three weeks later, it's like I never had surgery. The wrist was perfect. And so that gave me a real false sense of security. Because now I'm thinking, wait a minute, they told me these tumors would be so bad that I could die from it. This tumor, they went in, cut it off. Three weeks later, I was perfect. What the hell are they talking about? That these tumors are going to be so bad. You know, so I didn't believe it. It's like, no, this was nothing. First one was easy. Yeah, first one was real simple. So then at age 13, I went to a traveling camp that traveled all over the country through the Jewish Community Center. There was 15 guys and 15 girls and three advisors. And we went by bus. So every day we would go to a different area around the country, and we'd camp out, and you had to do one of three things. Either you cooked, you loaded the bus with the luggage every day and unloaded it, or you cleaned up. Well, they knew about my bone disorder, so I couldn't load the bus. So I had to cook and clean. Still pretty physical. It was. It was physical, but that trip, I walked down the Grand Canyon for 10 miles. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. So you weren't really debilitated too badly then? Not at that point. Not at that point, no. So now I get back from the trip, And my school starts in like 10 days. So it was my time to go to the doctor before school started. And so I went to see Henry Wade, Henry, and we took all the body films, and he was busy with another patient. And he had trained me, along with the other doctors, how to read x-rays. So I had all the x-rays. I mean, the technician had brought them all in. I'm there with my mother, of course, because I didn't drive. And I thought, well, let me start popping the x-rays up. And I start popping the x-rays up, and all of a sudden, I look at one x-ray, and I go, Oh, shit. Where did that tumor come from? It was a brand new tumor, and it was inward. It was an endochondroma. And when he walked in and saw that, and we pulled out old x-rays, it wasn't there before. And he looked at me, he says, Irvin, this is serious. I said, how serious? He said, this was Friday. He said, you need to check in the hospital Sunday. I'm operating on you Monday morning. That's how serious it is. That's intense. Yeah, it was. And he said, and looking at this tumor, I hope it's not malignant. It may be. And what that could mean is, that could mean amputation of your leg. Oh, unbelievable. I said, Doc, you know, there's one decision I made after I left Boston. 
and that was that you're not going to chop me up. If one tumor goes malignant, then the odds are other tumors are too. And so I'm not going to do that. I'll just die because it's not worth it to me to be chopped up. And I said, you've got to promise me that if you go in there and you find it's malignant, you just take the tumor out as much as you can and wake me up, and then we'll talk about it. And uh, my mother's right there, and he swore that's what he would do. So when I had surgery and he woke me up, he had a smile on his face, so that made me feel good. And he said, Irvin, it's not malignant. He said, but the tumor was huge, and I had to stretch your nerve. And you're not going to be able to feel much except for pain in your leg for like the next four years. Four years. And sure enough, I couldn't wear a pair of shoes for two years. I wore slippers everywhere. Horrible. And I had to learn how to rewalk. I had to learn how to do everything over again. And the pain was excruciating. And that's when I realized what Boston Children's Hospital had been telling me, how bad these tumors can be. So this was the second operation. And then the third, the fourth, the fifth, every year I was having surgeries on tumors that were causing me pain. They didn't take them out because of growth. They took them out more because they were growing towards the growth center or it was very painful. And these were all on my legs. And they kept me from going to school. The school system, funny, would, would try to let me start school. They'd usually kick me out within a couple months because I'd start missing summer at school because I couldn't walk. And they were scared I'd hurt myself on the school grounds. So one day I'd walk in the homeroom and they'd go, Irvin, today's your last day in school. Is that right? Yeah. But that was okay because Virginia had what was called homebound teaching. So therefore, you got to call the best teachers in the school system. And they would come to you in the afternoon after regular school. So my school didn't start at like 5, 5.30 in the afternoon. And when you've got the best teacher in the school system and you're intelligent, you can do the whole school year in two months. Well, the teachers didn't like that. They want to get paid the entire year. So they would try to slow me down. And plus, a lot of them were taking master classes at Old Dominion University, which was about 15 miles away from Norfolk. And so they would say, how do you feel today? Can you walk? And if I could walk, they'd go, good, let's leave. And we'd get in their car and drive to Old Dominion. And I would help them research whatever they were working on. So this way, they could put in for their hours as if they were teaching me, but in reality, they weren't. But it was an education because it taught me how to research, which was very important later on. You were essentially doing college-level research as a kid, as a, what, a junior high or a high school-age kid? 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. So you had a very intense and excellent education with one-on-one teachers, and some of it was taking place in college libraries. Yes. You made the most of it educationally, even if you couldn't go to school as you used to. Exactly. And so with each passing year, these tumors continued to grow and the surgeries happened. And did the pain go into different parts of your body at that point? Mostly in my legs. Okay, It never manifested itself in my spine or like my head or anything like that. So it was mostly my legs and, again, very painful. And every operation, I had to learn to rewalk. And my mother, there was no therapy back then, you know, not in the 60s. And so my mother was my therapist. She would work very tough on me to learn to walk again. But I was able to do it. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know any better. And you deal with what's in front of you. That's all. And like I said before, if I'd have died, if these tumors would have gone malignant and I wouldn't have had surgery and it would have killed me, not the worst thing for a child. It's the worst thing for parents, but not for the child. As if the pain weren't bad enough, you also had terrible pain-induced insomnia, didn't you? I did. How bad did that get? Especially after the first operation, it was very, very painful. And with the dampness at night, I couldn't sleep. I usually didn't get to sleep till like 7 o'clock in the morning. But there again, I could sleep till 2 o'clock in the afternoon because my school didn't start till 5 or 5.30. So it wasn't that bad. But what the doctor ended up doing, which was, I think, quite funny, is he said to my mother, Irvin needs heavy narcotics. But I don't want to give him heavy narcotics at this younger age because he's going to be worse off later on. And we're not going to have anything for him. 
So he joked with my mother. He says, has he ever had any alcohol before? And my mother kind of laughed. She said, of course he has. Why? He said, he has? She said, yeah, we get together in the Jewish religion every Sunday in Suffolk, Virginia, which was my grandparents' house. And people would come over the house, all the different Jews in the small Jewish community. And we'd get together for dinner or after dinner or whatever. And they'd put a bottle of bourbon out on the table. And everybody would have a shot of bourbon. Now, I didn't get as big a shot as my parents. But, you know, ever since I was 12, you had a shot of bourbon. It was no big deal. That's what everybody did. And so my mother said, yeah, Dr. Wave, he's used to drinking. So the doctor said to my mother, look, Thelma, when y'all go to bed at night, leave a bottle of bourbon out for him. Irvin, at midnight, have a drink or two. He said, you'll go to sleep. And that's what I used to do. And how well did that work? It worked pretty well. Actually, alcohol can be a good painkiller. The problem is it can interfere with other activities. And so that's the real problem with alcohol. You know, you sure as hell aren't going to drive. Of course, I wasn't driving anyway. I was too young. But it was used medicinally. And I was in a Jewish youth organization under Brene Brith because I couldn't go to public school. So this was my outlet to meet, you know, girls and other guys. It was fraternities all over the world, boys fraternities as teenagers and girls sororities as teenagers. But they were together under Brene Brith. And so we had conventions together. And it was great going to a hotel with 300 girls. But the thing is, alcohol wasn't allowed. So the doctor had to write a note to the organization <laughs> saying, that's Irvin's medicine. He needs it. So when he travels, you're going to have to let him have it. And so they would joke, they go, that's Irvin's cough medicine. You had a doctor's note as a kid to drink alcohol. As a medicine at night. When did you ultimately have to resort to prescription painkillers, and which ones did you go with? Oh, I resorted to them pretty much right away. I mean, even though I had the alcohol, yeah, during the day. Oh, I see. You didn't drink alcohol during the day. Okay, alcohol is only to help you sleep. Take away some pain at night and help you sleep, period. And so I was on different painkillers, but not as strong as, as Dilaudid, synthetic morphine, which I took later on. It was more Demerol, the Demerol a lot. And Butazolid and Alka was one, which really I hear was really bad drug to take at the time. Paraffin Forte for muscle relaxation. Um, what else? Lyorosol, I guess they gave me, baclofen. But again, in moderation, I didn't take a lot of pills because I didn't like what pills did to you. What did they do to you? They made me lethargic, and I didn't like that. I didn't like being lethargic at times. And, uh, but yet sometimes the pain was so bad that, you know, you didn't really care. You just, let me get out of some of this pain as much as I can. So... That's what I did. And, you know, when you're in pain, you'll try anything. Oh, absolutely. So that's really kind of what I was doing. And, again, I would talk to my doctor every time I went to him all the time and how I'm doing and everything else. And it wasn't like he was telling me, look, I'm only going to fill 30 of these. So you better be careful with them. There was never that. How are you doing, Irvin, with this? And is it working? And how do you feel about it? Do you think we need to increase it? Do we think we need to get something a little stronger? I mean, I was educated. So he would say, Irvin, you're still real young. Hopefully you survive. And you're 17, 18, 19, you have all these operations. What are you going to take then? He said, so I'd rather wait and hold off and have the more heavier narcotics as you get older, which made sense to me. That made sense because I didn't know what the future was going to bring. And so, therefore, you know, I didn't do a lot of the pain pills back then. Just put up with as much as I could. And that's just the way it was. But you were anticipating sometime in the future you'd be taking more opioids and other pretty heavy-duty pain medications to deal with all the pain that you were having in your legs? I thought so because it was, it's what was explained to me is these tumors will grow as long as I grow. And once I stop growing, they should stop growing. And I'm only five foot four, so I didn't grow a lot. But these tumors were still growing. I mean, I was still growing, but these tumors were growing. 
And so I could see how down the road that I could have a lot more operations and with with no choice because now I'd survived the first like three. So it's like at that point, you're more into having an operation than not having it because you now you've gone through three. What do you want to die now? So one thing you didn't try during your teenage years was marijuana. My understanding is you were very anti-marijuana. How so? To what degree were you unlike a lot of teenagers in terms of wanting to try marijuana? Well, I graduated in 1971. And in 1970, I guess it started, they would let me come to school in the springtime, usually. Maybe a little bit in the fall. But they would let me come to school and be with my friends for a day. Day here, day there. And so I'd have to call the principal and say, I want to come to school today. And he'd say, okay, come on in and see me. And usually the weather would have been good. And so I had to go see the principal. And he had to, you know, talk to me, make sure I was okay, and make sure he thought I could get around the school without hurting myself. You know, and I had to leave five minutes before each class so I wouldn't get, you know, in the hallway with people changing classes, get knocked over or something. And so different stipulations were put on me, but I was allowed to come to school. And this is when all these kids were starting to do illegal drugs. And here I had all these legal drugs. It's like I went to the principal one day when I went into school. I said, you know, I just don't understand why are healthy kids using illegal drugs when here I had to take all these legal prescriptions. And he said, would you talk to kids your age about that? I said, sure. So he would use me, you know, when I could come to school. He'd use me some classes, take me classes and some assemblies. And I'd hold up my baggie with all the prescription bottles. And I'd say, you know, you all know that I'm in homebound teaching and you know, I can't come up with my bone disorder. I said, look at all the prescriptions I have to take. Be thankful you're healthy. Don't do illegal drugs. It was that simple. So you were like your school's Nancy Reagan. Just say no. Oh, yes. I, and my, in fact, in my book that I wrote, in one of the chapters that I, I talked about that, is I said how I invented the D.A.R.E. program. Of course, I didn't. But, you know, this was way before the D.A.R.E. program. But, yeah, I was an advocate against it. Why would a healthy person do that? I just couldn't understand it. Be thankful you're healthy. So when I was in senior year, I wanted to try college. And they suggested the warm climate of Miami. And I had a girlfriend because of the neighborhood youth in Miami. And so I had girlfriends all over because, see, I didn't have to go to public school. And I became very active in the youth organization. So therefore, I could travel. I could tell the teachers, don't come this week. They'd put in for their hours as if they did come, but they wouldn't. And I had information on me from my doctor saying, God forbid something happens. If you're not able to get in touch with me, listen to him. He knows more about this than most doctors do. So if I had to go to emergency room or and finally I got to know different cities, different doctors, and they would listen to me. I'd say, this is what I need to do. And so I went to Miami and spent the time with my girlfriend, plus went around to different schools and got accepted to several schools. And this was Easter before my senior year. So I decided to go to Miami to college. And I went down to Miami and my girlfriend moved in with me before she was going off to school in two weeks. And the second day she was there, she pulled out a joint. And I said, what are you doing? She said, well, this is marijuana. I said, I know what it is. It's illegal. You're breaking the law. She said, oh, no big deal. I said, yes, it is. Either you get rid of that marijuana or I'm getting rid of you. Is that right? She would not get rid of the marijuana. And I got rid of her. You were that adamant about not wanting anything to do with marijuana that you actually broke up with your girlfriend. Right. But it wasn't that I didn't want to have anything to do with marijuana. It was illegal. Ah. And I had prescriptions at that point for Dilaudid, for Methacrylone, which was Quaalude, for Valium. You name the drug, I had a prescription for it. So all I envisioned is police coming in and busting me for marijuana and then seeing all these prescriptions and thinking I'm a drug addict or something. Exactly. I mean, it looked like you had a major stash going on there. Oh, I did. I did. So therefore, I wasn't going to be around marijuana. So I kicked her out. 
And so this apartment complex were mostly college students, and we'd be outside swimming, and they'd go, hey, let's go drink some wine and smoke some pot. And I wouldn't do it, you know, because that's breaking the law. And so I didn't do it. So after 30 days, it dawned on me that I wasn't making any friends. And in school, because they'd say, come on over to a party or something, there's going to be marijuana there, I wouldn't go. And so I'd been on homebound teaching for five years, and I wanted to make friends. And it dawned on me, the only reason I'm not making friends is because of marijuana. And it didn't seem to be harming the college kids much. I mean, they seemed okay, just as motivated as I was. And so finally, after 30 days, I decided to give in the peer pressure and try it. So I did. And it was pure garbage. It didn't do anything. And people around me thought they were getting high. I thought they were self-inducing it. Because me, it wasn't doing anything. I mean, if I want to get a buzz, I'd have some bourbon. You had no high off the marijuana whatsoever. Nothing. Pure garbage, as far as I was concerned. So now I was accepted. Now I'm making friends, you know, and they said, don't you want to buy some of this? I go, you're kidding me? This is bullshit. I said, you think you're getting high off of it, therefore you are. But no, it's not doing anything to me. Although I do admit that the first couple of times I tried it, first, I guess like 10th or 12th times, even though I wouldn't get high, ice cream and pizza did taste a little better. Okay, I had to admit that. But I wasn't getting the munchies or red eye or anything like that. And so about the 10th time I did it, I was playing a game of chess, which I hate. And it took me 30 minutes to lose. And I wasn't engrossed in the game, so I hate the game. And it dawned on me that I had sat for 30 minutes for the first time in five years. So immediately I thought, in what way did I take all the narcotics I have to allow me to sit? And I thought, wait a minute, I haven't taken a pill for six hours. Well, then how can I sit for the first time? And just then the person beside me handed me the joint. My turn. Uh, uh-huh. I looked at this piece of garbage because to me that's all it was. And I thought, this is the only thing I've done differently. I've smoked this garbage. So up until then, you could not sit for any prolonged time without moving around or taking pain medications. And this is the first time somehow you were able to do it. Right. Normally what my regiment was was I'd sit in the back of the classroom because I would sit for 10 minutes and then I would stand for 10 minutes. And I didn't want to block anybody's view. And so I'd always tell the teacher, you know, I've got to sit in the back or on the side of the, of the room so I can sit against the wall just so I don't walk anybody. Because I can't sit. And I've got to be able to stand. And, you know, during classes, you did take pills, but not as much because, again, I didn't want to feel lethargic. I didn't want it to dull my thinking. Because here I hadn't been in regular school for five years. And to be the first time in regular classes in college wasn't that easy, that's for sure. So I wanted to be as sharp as I could be. And, and then when pain got too much, I'd take the pills because you just couldn't learn anything. You just didn't want to. So that's what happened. So then when I was able to sit for the first time, because see, these tumors, the way the tumors are in the deformities in my legs and the muscles is they would get twisted around these tumors. And I'd start pulling them. I mean, God forbid you pull a muscle, you, you could hemorrhage. And that was what the doctors were most worried about is hemorrhaging. So I realized that it was the marijuana that, you know, it might have been the marijuana. I didn't know what it was, but it might have been the marijuana. So I called my orthopedic surgeon the next day, who'd known me since age 10. And I said, Dr. Wade, is there any medical benefit to marijuana? And after he stopped laughing, because he knew me, he said, I have no idea. Why? And I told him, that I said, well, sit for the first time in, in you know, five years. And all I did was smoke marijuana. He said, I've never heard of such a thing. Why don't you contact your family and research it? So I called my great uncle and my regular uncle and my sister, who was at Duke with nuclear medicine. And I told him what happened. Is there any medical benefit to marijuana? So we all went to the libraries and started researching it. And lo and behold, we all found that it was a legal medicine in this country from 1850 to 1937 manufactured mostly in tincture form by the major pharmaceuticals of the time, including Merck, Squibb, Eli Lilly, and many different pharmaceuticals. But it was like an 80% of our, of our medicines. It was in our foods. And it was beneficial. Was it used for pain? 
Yes, it was used prevalently for muscle relaxant, anti-inflammatory, and for pain, is what I discovered. I then discovered the government had a farm on the campus University of Mississippi. They were growing experimental marijuana. So I'm thinking real quick, because my friends had started to get, to get busted at this point, you know, and I knew that if I continued using marijuana, that I'd risk being arrested myself. But I wasn't convinced that it was really the marijuana yet. You know, I wasn't sure of that. So I had to be convinced of that before I would really look into it. So I went ahead and with learning what I learned, I said, okay, now I've got to experiment with this. So I'd use it for three weeks and get miraculously better. My intake of the narcotics would decrease by anywhere between 50 and 80 percent. 50 and 80 percent. That's enormous. 50 to 80 percent. Because what it did is it enhanced the effects of the pill. It's like a Dilaudid that would take me three hours, and then I'd almost need another one. I'd wait another hour, so four hours before i take another one, but I would need it after three. Now I was going five and six hours without having to take it. And then when I did have to take it, it wasn't as painful. And sometimes I'd wait a little longer. But I've always been told, never let the pain get out of hand. So don't be a martyr, because then it makes it harder to exacerbate the pain. But I was taking much less sleeping medications. There were nights I didn't take any sleeping medications, a lot of nights. And I was taking methaquilone, which was Quaalude, for sleeping. And uh, a lot of nights, and plus what I started doing was cutting them in half when I did take them. Instead of 300 milligrams, I was taking 150. Valium, I mean, Valium, my God, I cut back from, I used to take like four a day. I cut back to like one every other day or one every three days or one every four days. So prior to trying the marijuana, you were taking Dilaudid, which is an opioid, Valium, uh, Quaalude, you mentioned. Were you still using the bourbon? Oh, yeah, but I was using the bourbon not so much for sleeping. I was using it more to be with the kids and, and to get a buzz. I see. Because they would smoke and they would get a buzz, and me, I didn't get a buzz from it. So, you know, I'd have a drink or two and get a little buzz. And it would help me sleep that night. It would help me because I would only do it at night. Again, I would not do it during the daytime, ever. So, yeah, but I wasn't using as much of the bourbon as, uh, as I did in Virginia. But those very heavy-duty pain meds had some, I would guess, intense side effects since you were now in college, you had to study, and yet you were also taking these pain pills. Did they make it hard to get through the day? At times when I had to take them, yeah. You didn't like taking them during the day, so mostly what I would do is just kind of suffer as much as I had to before I took a pill. During that time, let's say on a scale of zero to 10, how bad was your pain even when managed with those prescription medications? Oh, with those prescription medications, my pain would go down to a four. A four. Without them, it was a normal six or seven. And then when it got bad, it was an eight or nine. Very serious. Very serious. Oh, yeah. It got very serious at times where you just didn't want to get up, you know? Exactly. But you knew you had to. So where were you on the pain scale once you tried the marijuana? How much did that affect where you were on the pain scale? Oh, it would drop me down to a two or a three, especially for muscle relaxation. I mean, that was really... Because, see, what I found was in my experimentation, marijuana to me, at least in my body, and everybody's body's different... Is not that strong of analgesic. It's really not that strong a painkiller. It's more of a muscle relaxant. Okay. And for my condition, the muscles are stretched over these tumors and veins by them growing into them. And that's what causes a lot of the muscle pain. There's the muscle tension and the feeling of pulling them or hemorrhaging. And so what it would do is it relaxed the muscles going over the tumor, thereby easing the muscle pain. But it's more of a muscle relaxant than, than a pure analgesic. And also it serves as an anti-inflammatory. I didn't have to take anti-inflammatory drugs because over each tumor is a bursar, which is a sac of fluid, trying to protect the muscle in the vein from the tumor. The more inflamed that bursar sac of fluid gets, 
it has a higher chance of malignancy. So I was on uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, too. I don't even remember the names of them back then mm-hmm. you know, for the anti-inflammatory issue. But the marijuana really took care of that. I mean, I basically cut out all of the anti-inflammatory drugs. Didn't need them with the marijuana. Through this observation, which was really kind of a fluke, that marijuana dramatically reduced your pain and also dramatically reduced your problem of pain-related insomnia, I get the sense that you gravitated to trying to get marijuana on a regular basis to use it for medicinal purposes. Is that correct? Correct. I'd use it for three weeks and then not use it for a week just to make sure I wasn't getting any better. Because, see, at this point, my tumors had stopped growing, supposedly, because I had stopped growing and I had survived. And so with the tumors not growing and I would survived, now I felt like I was ahead of the game. So, therefore, I wanted the best medicine that I could have to feel the best that I could without any kind of negative side effects. And I knew as far as the different pills that they can play on your organs. And marijuana from the research, of course, back then there wasn't as much research about the side effects of marijuana. They really didn't know. They didn't come out saying there were side effects, but I believe there still were. What side effects were you having? Oh, none. None. None from the none. marijuana whatsoever. No, none whatsoever. But the point is, I was believing the government. Oh. And what they were saying, how bad marijuana is for you. It causes brain cell damage. It does this to your lungs. It does this. It does that. And I'm thinking, I already got a bone disorder. Do I really want to take a chance on having all these other problems? Right. But then when I used it, and I felt so much better, and it didn't interfere with me in any way, my schoolwork got better because I wasn't as much pain. I could walk a lot better because I didn't feel like every step I was going to take, I was going to tear a muscle, or more important, tear a vein. And so it was much better quality of life with the marijuana. And so that's when I decided that my friends were starting to get busted. This was now in the spring of 72. I was completing my first year of college. And I decided that I got to have marijuana. It's that damn illegal drug that's helping me, more so than the narcotics and drugs they've been giving me. And so I called my orthopedic surgeon, and I told him what we'd found about the use of marijuana and the benefits of it. And it didn't harm me in any way, and I wasn't getting high off of it. There was no high at all. And that I wanted to come back to Virginia, and I wanted to take on the federal government. And I wanted to write up a scientific research project because my disease is so rare, I figured if I can put a scientific project together, that the government's out there to help us, right? That's what we thought. That's the theory. The theory, right. Well, it wasn't the reality, but it was the theory. So I figured, well, you know, I'm not going to be opening Pandora's box because how many people have this disease? Very few. And so, therefore, if I can go back to Virginia and write up my own scientific project and make my doctor as a researcher, although he's an orthopedic surgeon, he wasn't a researcher at all, but he was willing to do it. And as long as I wrote up everything. As he said, if you want to put this together, I've known you since age 10, I'll sign anything I can legally sign. But I'm not going to help you put this together, and I'm not going to help you fight the government. You're going to have to do all that. I go, fine, Doc. I will do that. I just need you to sign the project once I get it put together. I said, it's going to take time to put it together. It's not that easy. So I told my parents. My parents weren't happy, but I told them, look, I've got to have this medicine. And my friends are getting busted, and I can't take a chance on getting busted. And so I went back to Virginia with the knowledge of my family and supporting me, saying I had no chance in hell to get this done but that if this is what makes you mentally feel better and physically maybe feel better, then uh, do it. And so that's what I did. And my first stop was to the chief of police of my hometown. And I'd never been at a police station before in my life. I made an appointment with the chief of police, and I walked in. and I said, sir, let me completely explain why I'm here, and then you talk. He said, fine. So I started telling him all about homebound teaching in Portsmouth, my hometown, 
that was one of the top students at Woodrow Wilson High School. I said, you can talk to all the teachers, all the, the principals, the guidance counselors, everything, saying I'm lucky to be alive, one of the best students they ever had, and that I was an advocate against illegal drugs in high school, especially marijuana. And that I've learned in college now that marijuana is a very good drug for my condition. I said, I can't speak for other conditions, but I can speak about mine. And this is what I'm doing. I'm putting together a scientific project. Dr. Wave is going to be the researcher. Now, Dr. Wave was a well-known orthopedist that had operated on everybody in the city at this point, including the chief's family. So when I said Dr. Wave, they went, oh, Dr. Wave, you know, yeah. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the next week, call the school board, talk to them about me. Call the top doctors in the community because I'm known for what I've gone through. I said, call the top businessmen in the community. Ask about my family. Call the top lawyers. Ask them about me and my family. And then get back to me in a week. So he was taken back, needless to say. This was 1972. And he said, okay, I'll do that. So I left. And a week later, I called him back. I said, have you come to any conclusions? He said, yeah, Irvin, we need to meet. Okay. So I went back to the police station. And I walked in. I said, well, what would you find out? He said, everything you said was true. The doctor said, you're lucky to be alive. He said, the school board said you're one of the best students ever, advocate against illegal drugs, especially marijuana, and now you're saying marijuana works, that we should give it to you. Everybody said that. So I said, so you're going to do it? He goes, no, I'm not. And let me tell you why. Number one, we'll be breaking federal law. I said, screw federal law. How are they going to know about this? You're not going to tell them. I'm sure not going to tell them. My doctor's not going to tell them. (laughs) It'll just be between you and me kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. He said, well, second thing is the city attorney said that if you catch something from confiscated marijuana, that's what I was asking him to do is turn over confiscated marijuana to me. And so I wouldn't have to deal with the criminal element to buy it. And so he said, but if you catch something from it, you could sue the city. And so I said, well, I'll indemnify the city. He said, I suggested that to the city attorney, but he said, no, you would still be able to sue us. And see, I'd also learned from a cop friend of mine that we had an incinerator in Portsmouth that most of the marijuana on the East Coast was being sent to Portsmouth and incinerated in our incinerator. Is that right? So there were pounds and pounds and pounds, I mean, hundreds of pounds coming in weekly. <sighs> could you smell it in the air? Oh, yeah. If you got somewhere around the incinerator, oh, you could smell it. Oh, yeah. Huh. And so when I told the chief of police, I said, look, I think I can tell the difference if it's tainted marijuana or not, but I don't want to have to deal with the criminal element. And he said, Irvin, look, we can't do it. But you are a patient. You're not a criminal. He said, promise me you'll never sell it. And if anything happens to you, you tell them to call me. So I felt good about that. Meaning, let's say I bought marijuana on the street from an undercover agent or something like that. Or I'm at a party or something. Who knows? You never know what could happen back in 72. But now I felt like, well, God forbid something happens, I'm going to tell him to call Chief Boone. And he'll explain it. That I'm not a drug person or whatever, breaking the law. He would vouch for you. He would vouch for me, correct. And so I felt very good about that. My family felt good about that, that, you know, I'd accomplish something, but still they're not going to do anything. And I wrote up the scientific project. Dr. Wave signed it, and FDA stonewalled me for five years. Five years. Five years. And by that, you mean what? They just didn't get back to you, or they said, we're still looking into it? How do they delay for five years? All those things. They would wait five and six months before getting back to me in between letters my doctor. They would say that I hadn't been to this research center or I hadn't tried this, and that they're still looking into it. And so it got nowhere. I mean, FDA had no intentions of giving it to me. And my doctor and I knew that. But my doctor and I also knew that we started recording, that when I had plenty of marijuana, which wasn't very often because it was very expensive, plus you couldn't find it, my intake of Dilata decreased, just like I said. But when I didn't have marijuana, it increased tremendously. And so he started keeping records. You could chart it out. You could see the flow chart, essentially, of marijuana goes up, Dilata goes down. Exactly. 
he was adamant about trying to help me with that. And so at the end of five years, when they still stonewall me, well, it was before then, actually before then, my doctor died. So then I had to find another doctor to take over the protocol. Luckily, I did. So now he was fighting for me. This guy is an endocrinologist. And also now, before this, at age 19, when I got back to Virginia, all of a sudden, I had a new tumor develop in my right ankle. And the disease had said that you would develop no new tumors after puberty. And this new tumor developed, and Dr. Wave was still alive at this point. And when we went in and he saw the x-ray, because my ankle was bothering me, and I figured, well, I must have hurt myself playing basketball. So I'd gone in to see Henry, and I said, Henry, my right ankle's bothering me. I don't know what it is, but something there. And I had just gotten married, too, okay, at age 20. He said, go get your x-rays that you need, and I'll be back. So I went to the x-ray technician and told him, okay, I need this view, this view, and this view. And so they did the views, and the doctor was still with the patient. And so they bring the x-rays, and I'm there by myself. And I pop it up on the screen, and here is this huge tumor encasing my ankle as an enchondrome. Oh, boy. That sounds brutal. And it had never been before. I'd just been married, like two weeks before. And I'm looking at this tumor knowing what's going to happen. And, of course, Dr. Wave came in all jovial. He couldn't make it to the wedding. So I was going to tell him all about the wedding and everything else. And he looked at that x-ray, and then he looked at me. And he said, oh, my God, Irvin, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. He said, I don't need to tell you, do I? No, I guess that means Sunday i got to check in the hospital, and Monday you're going to operate. He said, yeah, it's got to come out. It's never good when your doctor is shocked by something he sees on the x-ray. Oh, yeah, exactly. But we were always honest with each other. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, no big deal. None of the doctors ever pulled any punches with me, even at age 10, which I appreciated. And so I had surgery. They had to break my tibia and fibula in two places, cut out that tumor, and put it back in place. And, of course, that hurt like a bitch. That was one of the worst pain operations I've ever had. Didn't really have to learn to rewalk the same because it was my ankle. It wasn't the knee and thigh and calf area. So that wasn't as bad, but the pain was excruciating. The pain was really bad from this. But I survived it. And then Dr. Wade died, which was a bummer. And then I started noticing another tumor growing. Now, the disease says that these tumors shouldn't be growing. So I went to a different doctor, and uh, sure enough, that tumor was growing. And then I noticed a new one growing a half inch from my balls on my left-hand pelvic. Ooh. And, you know, it's an area that a guy would know. You know what I mean? Definitely. You know if something's wrong down there. Right. And so I went to another doctor in his practice, and I said, I've got this tumor growing. Well, you can't have a tumor growing. That's not your disease. Believe me, it's growing. Mm -hmm. It's in an area that you would know. So we took an x-ray and popped it up. I said, okay, now get my old x-rays out and show me where this tumor is. And it wasn't there. And I said, it's a brand new tumor. I said, why am I developing brand new tumors? He said, I have no idea. He said, you shouldn't be. The disease says only the tumors of puberty will grow as you grow. You'll never develop new ones but I'm developing new ones. And that grew within a month to the size of my fist. What bizarre. And I knew it had to come out. And so I went to University of Virginia Medical School because I didn't have a doctor to trust. And my great uncle represented the school. And so I went to his friend who was head of orthopedics. And he says, Irvin, that tumor's got to come out. I said, I know. He said, well, we'll do it here. I go, you're 300 miles from my house. I'm not going to be operated on here. I said, give me a surgeon in my area that y'all like, that you tease him. He said, well, there's only one surgeon to go to. And he told me the name of the doctor. He said, now, let me tell you one thing about this doctor. He's the greatest surgeon there is. He is the worst doctor there is. We can't stand him. Nobody likes him. In terms of personality. Uh-huh. In terms of personality. Doesn't care about patients, he said. He said, all he cares about is operating. And he's a great surgeon. He's the best. But that's it. That's all he cares about. And so I went back, and uh, they had contacted him. I had an appointment with him. I walk in. 
The first thing he says to me is, says, look, Irvin, I'll operate on you, but I do not want you for a patient, period. He said, you know more about this disease than most doctors. So if you need surgery after this one, you call me. But other than that, I don't want to see you. Wow. He said, I'm going to operate on you. I'm going to get you healthy and then bye. Is that right? Oh, my gosh. And so time is still passing. You've got this five-year clock ticking with the federal government and your application for an experimental use of medical marijuana for yourself. And how did that ultimately resolve to where the government finally said yes? That's when I found this endocrinologist. At this point, I was like 22, and I'd been to University of Connecticut Health Center through my uncle at Yale, and they couldn't figure out why these tumors were growing. They had no idea. And so I go to this endocrinologist, and he looks at me, and he says, Irvin, let me see your little fingers. I go, okay, and I showed him my two little fingers. Look at how one's bigger than the other. Hmm. He said, and you don't have any ulnar bones either. And look at the curvature of your arms, and this, that, and the other. He says, oh, God, I think I know what you have. Goes to his medical books and starts reading pseudo-pseudo-hypoparathyroidism. Relevant in people who have multiple congenital cartilaginous exostosis, you'll develop tumors at any age, new ones, and existing ones can grow at any time. Oh my gosh, this is like the worst possible news. You thought you had been done with it at the end of puberty, and now you're getting uh, an extension on these tumors. Exactly. He looked at me, and I was smiling. He said, what are you smiling about, Irvin? I said two things. Number one, now I know why these tumors are growing. On my ankle, when it regrew and the ankle regrew worse, they wanted me to sue Dr. Waves' estate because he messed up. I said, right, this doctor operated on me five times. Great. On the sixth time, he messed up. Yeah, right. There's no way. There's another reason why these tumors are growing. And so I felt comfortable now that I knew why. He said, yeah, but Irvin, I just read you a death sentence. I said, Doc, I was told a death sentence when I was age 10, and I'm still here. Mm-hmm. I said, so I feel really comfortable about what you've told me. So he decided he would sign off on the marijuana protocol. And, and so at least I had a doctor now to keep fighting FDA for me. Good. And I had a doctor who I cared about, and who cared about me, understood my use of narcotics. There was not ever a question about my Dilaudid juice or things like that. He took over everything. Right. And, and so I was very happy. So marijuana didn't allow you to just jettison all the prescription drugs. It just allowed you to cut back on them. Cut back, but there were times that I couldn't find marijuana or couldn't afford it. Oh, got it. Right. And so then, you know, I increased the Dilaudid. I told him about that. So he said, let's start keeping records. So we would keep records, too, about, you know, my Dilaudid juice compared to uh, marijuana. Mm -hmm. So now in 1976, I read about Robert Randall getting busted in D.C. for growing marijuana for glaucoma. And he was going to court to complete a medical necessity defense. And he won. And his lawyers had gone ahead and applied to have him get marijuana from the federal government under this farm. So there was somebody else in the United States that actually knew about this, that the use of marijuana. So I was very excited about that, that he won and everything else. Meanwhile, they were still playing around with me. So now they told Bob to go home and sit down and shut up, meaning we don't want this out. Keep a lid on it. Completely. Well, that's not Bob. That wasn't Bob. He started going around to college campuses speaking and making money, getting paid to speak at campuses, and educating people. And that's how I met him at Old Dominion University. I showed him my scientific study. I said, look, I've turned this in in 1972, and they've been stonewalling me ever since. This was now 77 at this point. And what happened to Bob, when Bob started talking about it, they went to his doctor, and they got his doctor to leave D.C. by giving them a government grant to study something, but he had to go to Duke, Raleigh, North Carolina, to do it. Because they couldn't take Bob's prescription away because the media would have gone crazy. They didn't want to look bad, so they got rid of his doctor. So now he lost his prescription because he had no doctor to write a prescription for him. And so he went public with this. 
And when he went public with this in D.C., Steptoe & Johnson, which is a big international law firm headquartered in D.C., read about his story. And they hated what was happening. So they couldn't contact Bob, but they had some friends at Normal, National Organization for the Reform Marijuana Laws. So they called them. They go, do you know Bob Randall? They said, of course. They said, fine, have Bob get in touch with us. So Bob contacted Steptoe & Johnson, and Steptoe & Johnson explained that they wanted to take on the federal government on his behalf. And so Bob and Alice, the girlfriend then, but the later wife, they actually assisted Steptoe & Johnson in putting together a lawsuit, suing the government. Well, they filed the lawsuit on a Thursday. The next day, the government caved in, put a gag order on the lawsuit, and that's when they started the Compassionate Care Investigational New Drug Program for Bob. In layman's language, the government said he could use marijuana legally for his medical condition, but just him, nobody else at that point. Is that correct? Correct. And was, they had no intention to ever give it to anybody else. And was the government providing him with the marijuana, or did he? Yes. Okay. They were providing it for him, and because he didn't have a doctor, he was picking it up on the public health service. They were shipping it there. There were glaucoma doctors that could watch him, but nobody wanted to take on the protocol for him. And so now there's a gag order put on, as Bob tells me when I meet him. He said, let's turn your scientific project around to a compassionate care protocol. We're not going to say that we want to research marijuana anymore. We're going to say we know it works and that you have a qualified physician that believes it works better than the narcotics and other drugs that you're getting. Therefore, out of the compassion of the federal government, they'll give it to you. Of course, it wasn't going to happen that easy. And like Bob said to me, Irvin, you've worked five years on this so far. Right. <laughs> How would you like to work another five? Yeah, you're changing the strategy now, so you've got to start all over again. Exactly, exactly. And so Bob and Alice and I wrote up my scientific project into a compassionate care protocol. And when we wrote it up, now I had to take it to my endocrinologist because I'd have somebody sign it. And when I told him what I was doing, he said, Irvin, I'll be glad to read it and everything else. And he said, I'm hoping to be able to sign it, but, you know, I can't guarantee it. Well, I took it to him. He read it. He said, oh, my God, Irvin. He said, this is fantastic. So he was proud to sign his name on the protocol. I mean, it was so well put together. And he understood the situation that he had no problem signing off as the doctor on this protocol. And so he signed off, and then we sent it to FDA. And FDA continued to stonewall me. And like Bob said, they don't intend to give it to anybody. And I said, Bob, they didn't intend to give it to you, but you got it, you know? I said, but we're going to keep fighting. So now I'm thinking of other ways to fight the government. What else can I do? So now in 79, two things happened, which was important. Number one, my cousin started law school at University of Virginia Law School. And I thought to him, I said, you know, Donald, this would be a great project for the law school to take me on as a client. Oh, that's an interesting approach. Yeah, definitely. Well, Steptoe and Johnson had done this for Bob Randall, okay? And they weren't going to do it for me because they didn't know who I was. But maybe University of Virginia Law School, through my cousin going there, maybe, possibly, they would do it. So Donald went to the dean of the school and told him the situation. What I'd done with FDA for five years was scientific study. Now we turned around to a compassionate care protocol and this, that, and the other. And so he said, he's my cousin, he's from Portsmouth. And the guy goes, from Portsmouth? And Donald goes, yeah. Rosenfeld? He goes, yeah. It's his parents, Robert and Thelma. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I know them. In fact, I went to school with his sister. Is that right? Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. He said, I know them. And he knows my parents real well. It was in a big community in Portsmouth. And so he says, let me call him. So he called me. Richard Bonney is his name. And we went over everything. He said, Irvin, send me the protocol and tell me who you've talked to in the government because we're going to take this project over. He said, this, I think, would be a great lesson for my freshman law students, which Donald was in. And he said, once we get involved, FDA will not dare stonewall us. I went, yeah, right. You watch. 
So then in 79, Bob Randall would start traveling around the country getting laws changed. And the law that he was writing was allowing for a state to pass a law to allow medical use of cannabis for pain due to cancer and glaucoma. And he was getting all these different states around the country to pass this. So now he wanted to do it in Virginia. So we had hearings in Virginia. And he, of course, wanted me to go to those hearings. And I said, okay, Bob, I'll go, but I'm not going to speak up. I go, you know, I'm going to be admitting that I'm breaking the law. It's one thing for you to do it because you're not breaking the law, but I am. And my parents were totally against me going to this hearing. My wife was, but I went. Because Bob says, look, at some point, you've got to stop fighting for yourself. You know, you've just got to do it. So I went to the hearings, and, of course, the state police were there. They had the state police, had the crime commission. I mean, there were all kinds of policemen there, and, and there was the senators who was holding the hearings. And there was Bob Randall and two of the local attorneys who had been assisting me in paperwork and things like that. And so Bob says, are you going to testify? I go, no, I'm not. I told you that. I'm here to listen. So right before lunch, they said, if anybody wants to sign up to talk, let us know. You'll talk in the afternoon. So right before they broke, I guess about 1130, they had the Virginia Beach head of narcotics. And he, of course, was totally against it. And they asked him why he was against it. He said, well, my job is to stop illegal prescriptions. And I have enough problems with illegal prescriptions now that if you pass marijuana, there's going to be even more illegal prescriptions. So I'm against it. He said, what would be your answer to stop illegal prescriptions? He said, shut down all the pharmacies. (laughs) Yeah. If you shut down all the pharmacies, there are no more illegal prescriptions. Right, right. Okay, I mean, that's logical in his train of thought, I guess. Yeah. And I'm hearing him say that. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do for all my prescriptions that I need? They broke for lunch. And so, reluctantly, I went up to the clerk of the committee, whatever, and I put my name down to speak. And we went to lunch, the four of us, and I was scared shitless. I didn't eat lunch. I couldn't eat. And Bob's servant, you've got to do sometimes what you've got to do. So when they called my name, I went up there and basically told this entire story and said, oh, right now in my car, I have probably about seven joints. And in my house, right now, I have about two ounces of marijuana. And I explained everything, you know, knowing I was going to be busted. But it's like, at this point, what else am I going to do? And so I finished speaking, and I went and sat down. I sat down away from Bob and the two lawyers where I was sitting. I was by myself. I didn't want to be identified with anybody. And when I sat down, here comes the chief of police for the state of Virginia and the head of the crime commission walking towards me. That's scary. So the head of the state police said, do you realize what you just did? I said, look, I did what I had to do. If you're going to arrest me, just arrest me. They go, arrest you? We're not here to arrest you. You're not a criminal. You're a patient. We're here to ask you, how can we help? Is that right? And I couldn't believe it. Okay. Amazing. Like Bob said to me, I wasn't really that worried because I didn't see any handcuffs. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And they said this to me, we're after crime. We're not after patients. And they said, what can we do? I said, well, if this gets out of committee, you can help me in Richmond because I'll probably be lobbying for the bill. And they did. And it got out of committee and it went to Richmond, Virginia. And now it's public. But what they said to me is, because I testified before this committee, I had immunity. Oh, really? Yes. So what year was it, though, that the federal government finally gave in and said, okay, you're official, we will put you in the same program that Bob Randall is in, and we will give you legal pot? What year was that? 1982. And that whole saga of you first trying to convince them to let you do experimental test with marijuana and then shifting over to the compassionate strategy. How many years altogether did that take? Ten years. Ten years. Ten years, yeah. What happened is I'd gotten my congressman on my side, and they stonewall him. 
University of Virginia Law School, and they stonewalled them, and they kept telling me that, Irvin, we've got to play their game. So it was now January, February of 82. And they had been representing me now for almost three years, and my cousin's class was in their senior year. So they were getting ready to graduate law school now. And this was their project. So in February, Richard Bonney said, Irvin, we're putting the lawsuit together. He said, if we've given FDA enough time, and we're going to go in and sue FDA the way Septo and Johnson sued for Bob Randall. And so I was relieved that they finally were going to do something. So it took them about three months, I guess, four months to get it all together to where they were ready to do it. And so they contacted FDA, and they go, we're going to sue you on Irvin's behalf. And FDA came back saying, no, 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 don't do that. We're going to let Irvin have hearings before the FDA. We're going to give him 15 minutes to convince the panel of 19 doctors that his project is valid. So now Richard Bonney calls me and, and says, this is what FDA wants us to do, and we've got to do it. He said, because when we go to court, we've got to prove that we've bent over backwards for them. And they want you to go before this hearing. So we're going to put the lawsuit together, but you're going to have to go to Rockville, Maryland and testify. So, okay. So if that's what i got to do, I'll do it. So the hearings were in September. When I told Bob Randall that this hearing was going to happen, it was going to be in Rockville, Maryland, which is outside of D.C. He said, those are public hearings. I'm going to go to FDA, the building, and I'm going to put posters all over the damn building. I'm going to have the media there, and we're going to have everybody there witnessing. So when they turn you down, we have witnesses. So you went in there assuming you would lose. Oh, yes, of course. No chance at all, because you know, I was still the only patient. And sure enough, there were posters all over the place. And when I got to the room, there was the table set up for like 19 doctors. There was another table facing them with a microphone and three chairs. But I knew that was for me. And then there was room for maybe 100 people in the room. And I knew I had 15 minutes to do this. So now Bob and Alice show up, the media show up, and I do some media reports and everything else. And these people show up, and there are people in, in suits, there are people in white coats. I mean, it's quite amazing that they were there to listen to this hearing. And so it started. Here come the 19 doctors, and the doctor's in the middle that's in charge. And there were nine doctors on either side of him. And they announced why we were there and that I had 15 minutes to present my case. So I presented the case, as I've told you. And you could just see I wasn't getting anywhere. You could just see their faces, like, big deal. <laughs> and so I spoke maybe 13 minutes. I finished. I'd said everything I needed to say. So the chairman said, are there any questions in the audience? And a guy in a white coat raises his hand, stands up, and says, well, I really don't have a question. I have more of a statement. He said, I'm a visiting oncologist from Venezuela, and I'm here studying pain treatments for cancer patients. And what I've learned is the best pain treatment for cancer patients that you all have and that we have is Dilaudid. So he says, if his doctor and him have studied this for 10 years, with him having marijuana off and on, this needs to be studied with a regular supply. And he sat down. Oh, my gosh. So this Venezuelan doctor comes to your side and supports what you're arguing. Exactly. Well, you could see the faces on the 19 doctors. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> the chairman was so stunned that he didn't know what to say. So I said, are there any more questions or statements in the audience? You know? Right, exactly. Said, you know, he wasn't going to say it. And so there were none. So I looked at them. I said, gentlemen, that concludes my presentation. So now the chairman looks to his right. And all the doctors turn away from him. He then looks to his left, and all the doctors turn away from him. <laughs> he then looked at me and said, Mr. Rosenfeld, I think I can speak for the entire committee, that your presentation was very eloquent and convincing, and that you will become the second patient in the United States to receive medical marijuana. 
Is that right? So it happened right then in that way, and you were official at that point. Exactly, at that point. And it was because of that Venezuelan doctor. That was the reason it got done. And this is called the Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program. The Compassionate Care Investigational New Drug Program. And my understanding is they shut that program down in 1992, so no new people can sign up. Correct. But they grandfathered in you and others who were admitted starting with Bob Randall up until 1992. Is that correct? Correct. There were 13 of us at the time that were getting medicine from the federal government. Another 28 patients we had gotten approved for different ailments. They had gotten approved by DEA, NIDA, and FDA. They're the three government agencies that you had to go around, which was also another problem because you had to coordinate three government agencies. You had to get DEA to approve the legality of the doctor and the patient. You had to get FDA, of course, to approve the scientific study. And then NIDA, with the approval of the two other agencies, would ship the medicine. And so that was another thing that was very difficult. And see, what happened, the reason the program got shut down is Bob, and Bob was brilliant, okay? He sounds it. It sounds like he basically accomplished the bureaucratic equivalent of climbing Mount Everest to have the government agree to give him legal marijuana. Oh, he did. He did. He was remarkable. And I love being number two because Bob made all the decisions. I mean, we would talk over every subject. And we would disagree on a lot of subjects. But at the end, if he says, okay, this is what we're going to do, I went along because he was the first. I mean, I owed him everything. If it wasn't for him and Alice, I never would have gotten it. And so one of the things he found was it worked for AIDS patients because it took away the nausea from the AZT and different drugs they have to take. And unlike myself, most people get high. And one of the attributes, I guess you'd call it getting high if you're an AIDS patient, is it gives you the munchies. And for AIDS wasting away syndrome, it was the best medicine there was. So he sent around blank protocols to all the major AIDS organizations. They bombarded then George Bush Sr. with thousands of protocols because they had made a statement that if anybody wants marijuana, they'll get it. Anybody in the country, if you've got a medical need for it, don't worry, you'll get it. No problem. So the government was expecting a stampede of people wanting this government marijuana legally. Well, they weren't figuring it was going to be a stampede, but when the AIDS patients started sending in hundreds and hundreds of these protocols, that's when George Bush, running for the election against Clinton, didn't want to look soft on drugs. And plus, he was getting a lot of his campaign money from the pharmaceutical industry. So somehow, he got Health and Human Services to arbitrarily shut the program down. The 13 of us that were getting marijuana at the time were grandfathered in, so we didn't sue the government. Because Steptoe and Johnson was prepared to do that. Okay, they were right since the day they started representing Bob. They continued to represent him. So they were prepared. Bob had gotten them prepared that, hey, if something happens, we need you to go into court again. And the government didn't want to go against Steptoe and Johnson. They gave in to him before. And they would have just redone that lawsuit that the government didn't want out. So they grandfathered 13 of us since, so we didn't sue the government. I see. The other 28 patients who never received marijuana never did. Oh. So once you were official, how much pot did they send you per month or per whatever time period it was? Well, when they started off, they sent my doctor one tin can, which is approximately 300 cigarettes. And my prescription called for 10 a day. So the doctor gave me 70 joints out of that tin can. I drove over to his office. We opened the tin can. Of course, we felt like we had won the lottery. You know, I'm opening that tin can the first time. <laughs> and he pulled out two joints. He said, now go out to your car and smoke it and come back in so I can do an examination on you to make sure you're coherent enough to drive and do everything else. So I went out and smoked two joints, and the marijuana is freeze-dried, so it's very harsh. But I was very proud to have it and very happy. So I walked back into him, and he did respiratory breathing and all this, asked me different questions to make sure I could think. And he said, you're fine. Here's 68 more. Go home and come back in a week. So I came back in a week. We did the test over again, and I was fine. He said, okay, here's the rest of the tin can. 
So he ordered a can at a time for like the first three months. And then the government said he could order three tins at a time. Three tins of 300 joints each per tin. Correct. And you were prescribed 10 joints a day. Correct. And you're legally allowed to smoke them in any state in the United States, pretty much wherever somebody would smoke a cigarette, you can smoke a joint. Is that correct? Correct. But that agreement didn't come about to like 92, because when they were trying to shut the program down, TEA decided that they weren't going to allow anybody to drive with this or use it outside their house. Oh, really? And, you know, I was a stockbroker. And I wasn't getting any high from it. I never have. And my protocol, when Bob put it together, said that I could operate dangerous machinery, i.e. drive, as long as I'm not intoxicated. So we had that in my study. So finally, DEA just relented, and they go, look, would you agree to only smoke this where cigarette smoking is allowed? I go, that I'll agree to. So that's what I did. And so you've been receiving, and you're still receiving, these joints from the federal government. And it's been going on now for 34 years. Almost 34 years. November 20th will be 34 years. How much would it have cost you to buy that same amount of marijuana on the street? Have you ever calculated that? I did. I did, yeah, I did. And I came up to about $1.2 million. Is that right? And you're getting it for free from the federal government. Yeah, because the government can't sell pot. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Okay. I'm really curious about the specifics of how you use marijuana therapeutically for pain and insomnia. For example, after you smoke a joint, how quickly does the pain-relieving effect kick in? Oh, almost instantly. You can feel a muscle relaxation, which thereby eases the pain. And in my right ankle now, my right ankle is the only area that's inoperative. And the tumor regrew. So there I'm in pain, not muscle tension or anything. It's pure pain and a nerve entrapment. I've got a nerve entrapment in my ankle. And there it's an analgesic. So if my ankle's really bothering me, then, oh, the first couple puffs, after like three or four minutes, I can feel it. Do you still use any prescription pain medications? I do. I use, like, I just had two major operations, bowel resection and uh, frontal hernia. And so a drug that's very easy for me and never bothered me was Percocet. It doesn't interfere. It doesn't usually make me tired. It just helps with the pain. So I will fill Percocet, but I'll fill 20 every six, eight months. I mean, I take them so rare. And you're unusual in that from the very first time you ever tried marijuana, it, for whatever reason, doesn't make you high. Is that correct? Correct. And there's a scientific reason for that, and then there's my reasoning for that. And what is that? The scientific reasoning is they've discovered that every animal, every human being has an endocannabinoid system, that we have CB1, CB2 receptors, and we have receptors all over our body. And when you smoke, these receptors get excited because it's a natural substance for the body, and you get high. They think my receptors are defective. Therefore, I'm getting the medical aspect, but not the euphoria. Which, given the fact that you need the pain relief from marijuana throughout the day, I assume, it allows you to work. I mean, there's probably armies of hippies out there that are feeling really sad right now that you can't get high off marijuana. But in fact, it actually pragmatically is exactly the situation you need. It is. It really is. My friends say, yeah, it's a shame you don't get high. But the point is, I'm just thankful to have the medicine and it works. And they talk about the government marijuana being so weak because all I get is 4% THC. It's old school. It is old school and it is weak, but it works. Believe me, in all my travels, everybody says, oh, I hear you don't get high. You got to try this. And I'll try it just to see what it does medically for me. And nothing. I mean, it does something for me medically. I feel better. Okay, some marijuana makes me feel better than the government. But as far as euphoria, no, never. And so are you still smoking 10 joints a day? I'm trying to. And some days it's hard to get in 10 because, you know, you're working. Like right now, I mean, I'm really taking a break, but I've got my vape pen right here in my office. 
I was curious, in fact, are you required to smoke the marijuana in the form of the joints that it comes in? Or can you take it out and put it in a vaporizer or even make brownies out of it or do anything you want to with it? I can. I can. And so what I find is that I will take like 40 joints and open them up and put them in a baggie, the medicine, with about 15 pieces of moist paper towels for about 20 minutes. And the moisture from the paper towels will rehydrate the cannabis. Because they tell you to raise the moisture level, the government suggests you steam it. And steaming it doesn't work, plus they use cigarette paper, which is horrible, you know, really harsh and lousy. And then I roll each day what I need. And then my girlfriend makes me an oil out of my medicine. So that's what I use in my vape pen, which is good because at work, if I can't walk outside, I can vape near my office. And my firm has no problem with that. Well, that's nice. So it doesn't produce the same smell or the excessive smoke that a joint would. Exactly, exactly. And I don't think it works as well. I really don't. But you know the old saying, any port in a storm. You don't think a vape pen works as well as a joint? I don't. It's more efficient. And for somebody that has to worry about paying for marijuana, it's way more efficient. But when someone like me gets as much as they can use, I don't worry about it. You know, I just worry about the quality of how it works. I don't care if I waste. People say, well, you're wasting half that joint. Big deal. (laughs) And do you smoke it at set times during the day or only when the pain starts to rev up? Or how does that work? No, it's a loading dose type medicine. I smoke it whenever I can. So whenever I'm in the car driving, and now my office is 45 minutes from my house. So whenever I'm in my car, I'm driving, I'm smoking all the time, all the time, all the time. And what I try to do if I can is when I get to work, Well, now, since I've had surgeries, I don't get to work early because of traffic. It's just too far. I was 15 minutes from the office, now 45 minutes from the office because they moved the office. And so I get to work about 9.40, and about 10.30, 11 o'clock, I'll walk out to a balcony that we have outside, and I'll smoke if I can. And again, I've got my cell phone set up to transfer calls. So if any client calls in and needs something done, I just walk back in and take care of it. No problem. So then after lunch, if I can... I try to go to my car and smoke a joint. Sometimes if I'm really not doing well, if I have time, I'll smoke two joints. See, two joints of me takes a lot longer than a regular joint. One of my joints, the way I re-roll them, I roll them pretty thick and big. I've had them last 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And after you smoked one, how long does the pain-relieving effect last? Several hours. But I'll also come in at that point and also hit a vape pen. And then at night, what's your approach to using marijuana to get a good night's sleep? Do you smoke right before bedtime? Do you have to wake up in the middle of the night and smoke another one? How does that work? No, I don't wake up in the middle of the night and smoke another one. What I would do is smoke driving home, then usually smoke one or two once I get home, and then have dinner. And then I'll smoke the rest of the evening until I go to bed. And times I go to bed, anywhere between 10 and 12 And if it's really bad, if I'm really having a bad time, I will also make a drink if I'm really having a lot of pain. And if especially the weather's real nasty, it's fully damp and rainy and things like that, I'll mix up bourbon. And how many hours can you sleep? Are you able to get a full night's sleep? No, no. I usually sleep probably two to two and a half hours at a time, which for me, that's really great. Because what I mean by that is if I wake up four times in the middle of the night to move my muscles and move my legs, but can go right back to sleep... It's one of the most restful sleep for me that I can have. So I'm getting like seven to eight hours sleep total, but I'm waking up every two hours. Generally on a typical night, once morning comes, do you feel rested or do you feel exhausted or how do you feel? Usually I feel pretty rested, even if it's only like four and a half hours sleep. I dread getting up and having to go to work and everything else in that respect. 
But when finally it's 8.30 and I've got to get dressed, it's, okay, now let's go. It's no problem. I'm not dragging or anything like that. It's like, oh, my God, no. Uh-uh. I've already turned on business news. I know what the markets are doing worldwide, and uh, I've already smoked. And then I get in my car, and I light up, and I drive to work. Now, the federal government said you can legally use marijuana anywhere in the U.S., and I know from reading your book, My Medicine, that you've fully taken them up on that deal. You've lit up or been carrying marijuana with you in some really interesting places. I'm thinking in particular of this one incident in Fort Lauderdale Airport. I believe it involved a policeman and a drug-sniffing dog, and you had just smoked a joint, so you were reeking. Do you remember that? What happened there? Sure. I just smoked actually two joints. And I'm in line at the counter, and there are two people at the counter, and there's a, you know, another person like in front of me, and then me. And I look five gates down, and there's a cop in uniform with a dog on like a 25-foot leash, or a dog with a cop on a 25-foot leash. I'm not <laughs> right, sure which. Right. And this dog is going up to everybody and sniffing them. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be interesting, because I had my tin can in my carry bag in front of me. And the tin can probably had about 250 joints in there. I then had my baggie of joints that I'd rolled in my bag, and they were like 10. And then I had my roach bag, but all of it was in my carry bag in front of me. So I'm just wondering what's going to happen when the dog gets over to me. Sure. And finally, the dog gets over to me. And like I say, the cop's 25 feet away. And the dog sniffs me, sniffs the bag and everything, and the dog goes to the next counter. Completely passed you up. Completely. Amazing. <laughs> so, so I yell to the cop, excuse me, sir. Is that dog trained for bombs or for drugs? He said, for drugs. And, of course, there are people around me hearing me say this. And I go, well, then you need to bring your dog back over and put him against my bag. I'm one of the federal patients. I have almost six ounces of marijuana in my bag. So he orders the dog over but doesn't come close to me. Uh And the cop ordered him over. The dog stopped in his tracks and turned around and came right back to me. Sniffed my bag, everything, nothing, and then sniffed me and locked it on my wallet in my front pocket. And the cop, 25 feet away, says, you've got drugs in your front pocket. I go, officer, I've got marijuana residue all over me. But no, sir, I have nothing in my pockets. Everything's in the bag. Put the dog back on the bag. So now the cop comes closer. I mean, what the hell's going on here? And the cop comes to me and says, my God, you reek of marijuana. I go, I know. I just smoked two joints coming here. I said, I'm a federal patient. I have a prescription for it. I said, but I have nothing on me. The tin can and everything's in the bag. Put the dog back on the bag. And meanwhile, all the people at different counters are hearing this. And so he puts the dog back on the bag, and the dog sniffs the bag again, nothing, turns on me and locks it on my wallet again. And I turn to the cop. I said, sir, I think you need to retrain your dog. <laughs> he broke the dog off of me and walked away. Oh, my gosh. Just totally walked away. Now, you had another incident that you actually got a surprisingly accommodating response the time you ducked behind some bushes at Disney World and lit up a joint, didn't you? What happened then? No, it turned out okay, but no, there was a big problem with that. Oh, really? What happened is my wife and another couple and I had gone up to Orlando for the weekend, and we went to Epcot first. Now, Epcot is a huge facility, and there's grounds everywhere, you know, besides where all the rides and the buildings were. There were grounds. It was a big lake. You could walk to the lake and everything else, so it was no trouble with me smoking. I could walk away from people and light up and no problem. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. So now I'm thinking, Disney World the next day is going to be the same way. We go to Disney World, and it's a two-by-four park. I mean, everything is smashed together. There was nowhere to go. And I'm thinking, this sucks. What am I going to do? So I waited till almost 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and my legs were killing me, and I needed to smoke. Mm-hmm. And so we had just come out of a ride, and my friends liked it so much, they want to do it again. 
as a 30-minute ride. So I said to my wife and the other couple, I said, look, I'll meet you right here at 5.30. This was 5 o'clock. I'll meet you right here at 5.30. So they went back and get in line and go out you know, on the ride again, and I looked to where I could go smoke. And I saw a sidewalk with people, you know, going up and down the sidewalk, but there was a line of trees or bushes, big ones, like six foot tall, six, seven feet tall, and you couldn't see on the other side of them. So I figured if I can get on the other side of these bushes, I can smoke and people are going to smell it, but they're not going to see me. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I found a way around them. And when I got back behind them, there was an air conditioning building. It looked like big units of air conditioning, and that was it. And so I lit up, and I'd almost finished the first joint, and a trap door opens up. And this girl gets out. She looked like she was 12. She must have been like 16 or 17. I don't know. And she knew exactly what it was. And she says, you better put that out. You're going to be arrested. I go, this is medical use provided by the federal government. So I'm smoking the second joint. And sure enough, here come the Mickey Mouse police. And they're not in uniform or anything like that. And they go, you're under arrest for possession and use of marijuana. I go, this is a prescription. And again, I didn't have a prescription per se at that point because I was getting it from my doctor. So there was no real prescription and there was no internet at the time, you know, where you can Google me and now it's no problem. And the government didn't give you any sort of an ID card or no, anything like that? No, they would not do that. Mm-hmm. We tried. They would not do that because they said they didn't have to. So they sent you out in the world basically to try to convince police that you're legal. And most police haven't even heard of this program. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And this was the first time I'd ever traveled. I knew that this could be a problem. And so what I had done before I left Portsmouth, I called my friend Chief Boone, you know, Portsmouth, the police department. So, of course, he was happy when I became legal. Sure. He congratulated me and everything else. And I said to him, hey, I've got to go to Orlando with this medicine. What am I going to do? Why don't you put a rap sheet on me? And he said, that's a great idea. So they put a rap sheet on me saying a certain, certain date, the Portsmouth Virginia Police Department had called DEA and FDA and found out that I'm legal on this state, that I'm legally allowed to possess marijuana and that I'm not breaking any state law or federal law. So I figured one cop would call another. Sure. That was wrong. That didn't happen. And so when I originally got busted in 83 for marijuana, this was before Disney World. I got busted originally in 83 in Orange County, which is the same county as Disney World. They said that Florida law superseded federal law. Hmm. And they arrested me with this for six joints. And I told the cop when they was arresting me, I said, look, I've got a tin can back in the hotel. That's got government labels on there. I got 250 more in the hotel. If you're going to bust me for six joints, <laughs> yeah. go to the hotel and get the can. Exactly. Get all 250. Yeah. And I told him, I said, look, I'm a federal patient, and you know, I'll pay for you to call the Portsmouth Virginia Police Department and ask for a rap sheet on me. And they wouldn't do it. So I got busted. I got fingerprinted and pictured for the first time in my life ever, knowing I wasn't breaking any law. And so, But when the government realized I was arrested when I told them the next week, they sent a letter to the uh, judge, which I have a copy, saying the federal statute that I'm under and that I'm not breaking any law. So I always keep that in my wallet just in case. So when this happened at Disney World and um, when they arrested me, I said, look, can I wait here for a few minutes till my wife and the other couple come out and that this is a federal prescription, I'm legal, blah, blah, blah. And so they're calling up to the security people and the security people says, no, you got to come with them now. So I followed them and I saw parts of Disney World no one's ever seen. I bet. They took me up to a office building and they took me up to the third floor, and they put me in a room. And in the room was a table with an ashtray on there. So I put out my baggie, and I lit up. <laughs> okay, and the head of security walks in and says, what are you doing? I said, well, sir, if you have a problem with me taking my prescribed medicine, which I told you over the walkie-talkie that's prescribed by the federal government, if you have a problem with me taking my medicine out there, I'll take it in here. I don't mind. Okay. They said, you're serious, aren't you? I said, yes, this is a federal program. I said, in my car, which is out in your parking lot, I have a tin can with a government label on there. And I have some other paperwork. I have a few newspaper articles that talked about me. I'm not making this up. 
So he says, oh, my God, we got a problem. I've always sworn out a warrant for your arrest. Is that right? And so I looked at him. I said, sir, I think you've got a bigger problem than that. He said, what's that? I said, sir, I'm a stockbroker. And Monday morning, I'm calling your board of directors in what you've done. So now Debbie, my wife, and the other couple come out, and they don't see me, and Debbie knows I am prompt. If I say 5.30, that means I'm be there at 5.28. And I wasn't there, and Debbie knew right away what was wrong. And so she contacted security, and sure enough, I had been arrested. So they bring Debbie and the other couple up to the room. Meanwhile, the cop shows up to arrest me. And the head of security says, look, there's a problem here. We think he's legal. We think this is a federal program with a prescription. So therefore, I want to drop the charges. He said, you can't. He goes, what do you mean I can't? I'm head of security. I'm the one who called y'all. I want to drop the charges until we figure out what's going on here. We want to send my security people out with his three friends, go to his car and get his tin can and paperwork and let him come back. So the cop went along for that. So now they come back with my tin can and all the paperwork and everything else, and they put it on the table and they show everybody everything. And so the head of security says, hey, this is a federal program, apparently. Just drop the charges. He says, I can't do that. And the guy grabbed me to take me out of the room. The head of security grabbed the cop and says, you cannot do this. Oh, really? Huh. And they said, the only way to drop the charges is to get a federal judge on the phone. And this was Sunday afternoon, which wasn't easy to get a judge on the phone. Well, they detained me for three hours. And I was never put in handcuffs or anything like that. They finally got a judge on the phone to drop the charges. Oh. And so, um, and again, what I had said, funny thing is, the cop, when he went to arrest me, I said, sir, let me show you this letter from the Justice Department to the Orlando judge. And I said, when this happened in 83, they were worried about me furthering the case. Mm-hmm. I said, I lived in Virginia then, so I didn't. Today, I live in Fort Lauderdale, and I sat down and didn't say another word. I mean, you want to bust me? That's fine. I'm going to sue y'all. I'm going to sue Disney World. I'm going to sue everybody because I'm here in this state now, you know, and so... Once the cop finally let me go, I had one of the, um, there were like eight people for security at Disney World, and one of them was a good old boy from Tennessee. And when this was all going down to start with, I looked at him. I said, you do believe me, don't you? He said, I sure do. I said, you're going to take care of me? He said, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. So after all this was done and the cop left, he says, okay, we've just made reservations for you at the nicest dinner place we have on site, on us. And here are four three-day free passes on us. We're sorry for what happened. But you can understand why I did. And I did. Sure, definitely. I said, well, that's great, but that doesn't solve my problem with taking my medicine. And he said, what if we do this? We're going to put you in the computer. So you can go to the clinic anytime, and they'll let you in the clinic, and you can take your medicine. I said, well, that's great, but I can't walk long distances. And if I'm on the other side of the park, what good is that going to do me? He said, okay, what if we have you in the computer? You just go to anybody in security. There's security everywhere. Just go to anybody, tell them to call the clinic, Mm -hmm. and they'll verify that you're a federal patient. And then what they'll do is they'll let you out because they have like hundreds of different entrances and exits for the employees. They'll take you to the nearest exit, probably within 25 to 40 feet, Mm -hmm. and they'll let you walk 50 feet away outside the park. Go take your medicine, then come back in right where you were. They'll close the gates, and then you go about your business. Is that right? So you have special permission to be escorted to a sort of secluded location anytime you're there to smoke marijuana? I did. Right. Amazing. So we went and had dinner. When we finished dinner, we got out, and there was a clinic right there. And so I, um, I wanted to test it. So I knocked on the door, and the nurse came, and I told him I'm supposed to be in the computer, and I need a place to take my medicine. So she pulled it up. She said, oh, yeah, there you are, right there. She said, what's your medicine? Because it wasn't in there. I said, marijuana. She said, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. She says, we've only got two rooms here. We have the room that we're standing in right now, and then the doctor, who's not here, because it's at nighttime now, Sunday night, he has an office. 
I said, well, let me go in his office and use the office because it smells and everything else. So I go in the room to light up, and there was a bookshelf with maybe hundreds of books, but there were only two books on the bookshelf. And one was Medical Use of Marijuana by Norman Zimberg. So I ran to the nurse and said, you got to give me a pencil and paper. So I wrote the doctor a letter saying, Doc, of one of the two patients in the country that legally use marijuana, I am now using your office to take my medicine. <laughs> I'd love to have seen the expression on his face when he read that and caught a little faint whip of the marijuana residual smell. Yeah, well, there was definitely a residual smell. I mean, I'm sure because oh, this yeah. was Sunday night, I'm sure he was there Monday. Oh, yeah. And he never contacted me. I gave him my forwarding information, but he never did. Amazing. So that was my Disney World story. Now, you're a stockbroker, so presumably you're handling millions of dollars of other people's money. How have you allayed any qualms that your clients and employer and coworkers might have about your marijuana use since you're fairly public about it? Oh, I'm very public about it, and it's not hard to do. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met anybody that's ever taken on the federal government and won? Not one. No, never. Okay, well, the expertise I use to take on the federal government and win is the expertise I use in my business. So if you want that expertise in helping you with your investments, then you want me for your broker. If you have a problem with me using marijuana, even though I don't get any fork effect or anything, then you don't want me as your broker. So that's your choice because, you know, there's two things important in my life. That's number one, helping people with their illnesses to get the right medicine. And the other is to take care of my clients and make the money. And they're both important to me. And presumably your employer and clients are fine with that. I mean, that they have nothing to come back at you with based on that argument. Right. But of course, I, I joke, my coworkers, they can't stand me. Why is that? Because I won't share. <laughs> now, where do you smoke at the office? Well, I vape in my office, okay? And then I go out either to my car, which is in the parking garage, or we have two little outside alcoves, and I can just go out there and smoke. Now, Irvin, you could have taken your free legal pod and spent the rest of your life quietly smoking it on a back porch and to hell with everybody else who's in chronic pain. But you've done the opposite. You've been a vocal proponent of medical marijuana. You've testified before state legislatures and also at the federal level to advocate for legalizing medical marijuana. Now, when you've done that, undoubtedly there have been people on the other side of the argument who are against this. What are those arguments that you hear from those people who oppose the notion of medical marijuana? And why do you think those arguments don't hold up? Those arguments don't hold up because when they talk about how bad it is, I always point out that, you know, you seem to be a very intelligent person. And sometimes they'll brag, well, I've got my master's in this, I've got this, I've got that. I go, well, that's fine. I said, if everything you just said is true, explain me. Explain me. Mm-hmm. He says it causes lung damage. My lung capacity is 108% of normal. He says it causes brain damage. I'm a stockbroker. My disease should have killed me, but it hadn't. These tumors started growing, and they stopped. I haven't had a tumor grow or a new one develop since I was 21. And the doctors don't know why. I know why. It's the cannabis stop the growth of the tumors. I said, so I'm lucky to be alive. I'm alive because of this medicine. And they won't debate me. Nobody from drug-free America or whatever will debate me. They will not do it. They won't do it. They won't. They won't get on stage with me ever because I'm living proof that it does work. And it's not true that it's harmful. And before 2001, what they used to say is, well, wait a minute. You're the anomaly. You're the 85-year-old man that's been smoking Three packs of cigarettes a day since he was 13. And he goes, what do you mean cigarette smoking causes cancer? I'm 85 years old. I've been smoking three packs of cigarettes a day since I was 13. I don't have cancer. Yeah, so how do you respond to that? Well, it was hard to respond to that before 2001. After 2001, Dr. Ethan Russo in Montana did a complete evaluation on four of his federal patients. 
They did brainwave testing, IQ testing, respiratory, blood work, you name the test. Memorization, they did everything they could think of to prove if there had been any detriment to our bodies. And the four of us thought that there might be some. We didn't deny it. But we felt like what little harm it may be doing, the good far overrides the harm that it might be doing. Well, after they did all this testing on the four of us, all four of us were perfectly normal. So at that point, what's the opposition going to say? Well, you know, it's detrimental for everybody but the four of you. Thank God you're the only four that get it in the country, you know, because I was no longer an anomaly. You're referring to the Missoula Chronic Clinical Cannabis Use Study. Correct. Which I read that study, and I found that a fascinating study in that First of all, you four people who were studied are probably the most well-documented long-term marijuana users on the planet. You know, a lot of studies that look at marijuana use are relying on people's self-reports of marijuana, whereas you have the documentation to prove just how long you've been using it, how much you've been using it, and so forth. Right. The drawback to that study, though, is that there were only the four people. Right. So it's kind of hard to make a big sweeping conclusion about how marijuana would affect the population as a whole based on just four case studies. But the point being is I could say that I'm not an anomaly, or are you going to say all four of us are the anomaly? That's true. Okay, so that was the argument that I could make in that respect. And so to me, that was very important. And so I I thought that study was great, what Ethan did. To this day, look, it's almost 34 years. If there was any detrimental, harmful side effects, I'd show it. I mean, I've been using it for 46 years now, total, okay? And so there aren't any harmful side effects. I mean, that's just it. There aren't any. Some people say it causes paranoia. Well, paranoia is caused by the law, okay? In other words, the fear of getting arrested for using marijuana is why people are feeling paranoia when they use marijuana. Exactly. And, I mean, once the laws change in states, people aren't paranoid anymore because they're not breaking state law. Those are good arguments. I think maybe even a better argument is the one that you mentioned earlier where you said, if you're in chronic pain, you're going to have to do something about it. Doing nothing is not an alternative. And if the choice is between opioids, which kill about 19,000 people a year in the United States, versus marijuana, which has no documented case of any deaths from marijuana overdose, it's again, there's an irony that opioids are the legal option and marijuana is the illegal option. Well, that's that because you can't produce an opioid out of your house but you can grow a marijuana plant. So you're suggesting that the illegality of marijuana is is a political reality because of money. Exactly, because the pharmaceutical companies want to make money off of sickness. And if you can grow your own medicine, you're not going to buy their drugs. And I'm a perfect example of that. Ever since 1990, my intake of other prescriptions have been decreased tremendously. Mm-hmm. So they're not making money off of me. So they can't see that happen. I mean, you can't grow poppies and make morphine, but you can grow marijuana. And, you know, one of the things you said, is why don't I just sit home on my porch and smoke and to hell with everybody else? I was very fortunate in everything that happened to me and how many people have helped me get to where I am. And I really realized that when I was writing my book. I had no idea how many people have helped me, how many different things had happened that God somehow was there. So the way I look at it is when you've got a debilitating disorder, it sucks. And my bone disease sucks. But if you're able to take something bad and make it into something good, then it makes you feel better. It makes me feel better. So because of my bone disease, I've helped millions and millions and millions of people worldwide. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like I'm giving the finger to my bone disorder, you know? It's like, yeah, you see what I did because of you? Exactly. Your political activity is empowering, no question about it. And over time, it's clear that as more and more states come online with medical marijuana laws and 
four states now have recreational marijuana, that you and other advocates have had an effect, no doubt about it. Definitely. So it just makes me feel so much better. I mean, when I go talk somewhere and I have people come up to me and tell me how good marijuana works and thank you, Irvin, for being the pioneer to help us get to where we are today, you know, it makes me feel good. It's like, you know, hey, I made something good come out of something bad. Last question. Besides being a stockbroker, you're into sailboating and you teach able-bodied and also disabled people how to sail. You play softball. You travel a lot. You're politically active. If you hadn't discovered marijuana, and it was kind of a fluke that you did, really. Oh, very much so. Yeah. What would your life have been like in terms of having an active and fulfilling life? I wouldn't have been active because when I was on morphine, I didn't do sports at all. Because my family being in medicine, basically what they said is we don't want you doing sports. Because you could hurt yourself and not know it while you're on these drugs. They just numb you out so much you could injure yourself and not even feel it, you mean? Exactly. Exactly. And so I didn't do sports at all. You know, well, in the 19 years that I took the lotted, I didn't do any sports. And my life, if I was still alive, I'd be heavily onto different narcotics and drugs. I'd probably be homebound. I wouldn't be working. I would probably be on disability, like many people in many states that don't have good medical marijuana laws, because I was able to get the right medicine, and I'm not on disability. My disorder would allow me to qualify for disability, probably. Uh, I never have applied. Never would. But I wouldn't have the quality of life that I have at all. And believe me, as far as, you know, making people money in the market is nice, but it's not fulfilling. Okay, helping people and getting people to appreciate what I've done in the past and what I'm doing now, it's a charge. I mean, it really makes me feel good. And then with Shake a Lake, my disabled sailing program, that's just tremendous to get somebody out of a wheelchair, get them in a boat and get them sailing that boat. Okay, and they're actually sailing the boat. And we teach them. That's amazing. It is. It's truly amazing. And, and some of these people... I mean, my best friend who, who got me involved has no arms. He sails the boat with his one good leg. Wow. And how many people, and he was, you know, he lost at age 19, we're the same age, we're 63. And what did he do? He went to school and became a psychologist and was one of the heads of blind services for Dade County, for Miami, teaching people how to deal with their blindness. And this guy has no arms. Wow. And you yourself have overcome a lot, and it sounds like marijuana has been instrumental in helping you do that. Oh, it has. It has. It's life-saving, and because I was so fortunate to become a federal patient, and I was in this type of business where I could stand up and talk about it and not worried about getting fired, and I had to. I mean, I had to help others. There was no choice. I mean, I don't know if it's the way I was brought up, being Jewish, you help out other people, especially people who are less fortunate than you are. You know, look, I was in Puerto Rico two weeks ago helping them with their new law, and the people coming up to me and saying, oh, Irvin, we've seen you on TV. We never thought we'd have an opportunity to meet you. But thank you so much for what you've done because... I'm able to do what I need to do, and I've got um, lupus, or I've got muscular dystrophy or multiple sclerosis. So it just it makes me feel good. And also to point out to all the people who've been against us, see, I've been telling you for 42 years this was a medicine, yeah, you're finally realizing it. Well, that's the show for today. If you'd like to read Irvin's memoir entitled My Medicine, How I Convinced the U.S. Government to Provide My Marijuana, and help launch a national movement, you can purchase a copy by going to his website at mymedicinethebook.com. You can also find a link to his website by going to the show notes for this episode at painopolis.com. Also, if you'd like to know more about the pain-relieving properties of marijuana, the show notes have links to a number of published scientific studies, including randomized clinical trials, prospective studies, and the Missoula study that Irvin mentioned, all of which explore that very topic. 
While you're at Painopolis.com, you can also swap insights with other listeners just like yourself and give us some feedback too. Or drop us an email with suggestions about topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. And if you like Painopolis, go to our Support the Show page and make a financial contribution. We most appreciate your generosity and we'll use your contribution to bring you more episodes. So if you like the show, support it. Finally, if you'd like to help other people in chronic pain discover Painopolis, go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time and we wish you well.